Welcome to Small Business Celebration. We're continuing our series on small business owners who are getting the move on. And our guest this week, well, he combines law and science to grow a strong and profitable business. This is Small Business Celebration. Welcome, where we chat with real business owners who have real success and learn from them about what works, what doesn't, and who want you to know that there's a light at the end of the tunnel and it's not a train. Join us where you can learn something that you can use today to grow a strong and profitable business. Welcome to Small Business Celebration, and our guest this week is Richard Middlebrook, the founding partner of Middlebrook & Associates. Welcome to Small Business Celebration. <laughs> Good morning. And for visionaries who don't know who you are, who are you and what is it that you do? Uh, I'm Richard Middlebrook. I am the founding partner of Middlebrook & Associates. We are a DUI defense firm that handles driving to the influence cases for those accused of alcohol, drugs, or a combination of both. For visionaries who don't know, what is your track record? So I've represented over 10,000 people in driving under the influence cases. I've tried more cases than anybody in the state of California in driving under the influence. I've now tried 283 DUI trials with only eight convictions. Only eight convictions. That's impressive. And if you're listening to this program on the podcast, what you don't see behind Richard is a whole series of plaques that he's been one of the top attorneys and lawyers by all kinds of different magazines for, it looks like the last 200 years. <laughs> <laughs> my, my, wall, my walls of shame, when I, feel, <laughs> when I feel bad about myself, I come in and sit down and stare at the walls and, and say, oh, you know, there was days when I was better than this. <laughs> But you also, it's, it's rather intimidating, too, because if you have a, we're here in the conference room, and if you have a guest that comes in, and you have a potential client that comes in, that, one, it gives them confidence that, you, that you're successful and that you know what you're talking about, because somebody else has, has said you, you do well. But also, for the opposition, the other table, they come in here and suddenly they're going, this is somebody I need to pay attention to. Yeah, I think it's probably, um, you know, I use it for the purposes of trying to gain some credibility. And they, they sell you these plaques, you know, they will give you awards, sell you the plaques. Um, some are awarded, some are sold. But <laughs> ultimately, the, the thing that I think that it helps with is everybody has a DUI story. Everybody knows someone who was arrested, someone who was convicted, someone who hired a lawyer or a lawyer. Right. And unfortunately, despite, I think, everyone's best intention to give good advice. Um, sometimes that advice is very stuck on their experience or their knowledge of it. Um, so they may think uh, they have the best lawyer in the world or they have the worst lawyer in the world. And that may be true for their case, but it may not be true overall. They, they wanna give advice as to what you should have done, how you could do it differently, what you sh whether you should need a lawyer, whether you don't. Right. I, I hope that it builds a little bit of credibility with the new client who comes in and t sits down that my goal is to give them advice, not to have them retain me. Right. Um, I want them to leave with a little bit more knowledge than they came in with, and we don't accept a great deal of the cases that come in wanting to hire us. Right. If I don't think I can make a significant difference in the outcome of their case, I won't waste their money spending it on me. We'll just say, why don't you save that one and give them some different routes to take. Your practice has been successful enough 
that you've gotten a wide variety of types of professions and even some prosecutors. Yeah, well, when I've been lucky enough that in gaining somewhat of a reputation for doing what I do, speaking as much as I speak around the country, really around the world now, um, when someone really needs to have the best representation, um, they tend to come here for it. Um, there are a lot of people who do DUI defense. Um, right. There are, you have every criminal lawyer will do take a DUI case. They're happy to take your money. Happy to take your money. You'll still lose. Yeah. But <laughs> Unfortunately, that, that happens more often than not. And there are, there's a variety of criminal defense lawyers. Some people who do traffic citations think, well, there's, this is, has a car involved in it. That's enough for me. I'll take these cases. Right. Um, you also have other lawyers as times have gotten tight, especially through the lean times of COVID and things like that. They've expanded their practice and it looked like easy money to them to simply take some money on a DUI case and right. go into court and plead guilty and they're done with it. And unfortunately that's happened a lot. And so you see a lot of crossover people, people who do um, personal injury work, who do family law, who do real estate are suddenly now they're the most local DUI expert. All you have to do is put it up on your website that you do DUI defense and you're really, really, really good at it. Um, and all of a sudden... And just because you've done a lot of cases doesn't constitute that you're good at it. Right. And, you know, there's, there's a wide range. One of the things you see a lot is um, a lot of attorneys will come in charging very little um, to represent someone in a driving under the influence case. Um, some as low as $500 to $1,000, which is very little to, to be able to handle a case as an attorney. Um, their idea and business model is get as many people on board as, as quickly as possible and resolve their cases as quickly as possible with as little work as possible. They're not really concerned about the outcome of the case. They're more worried about getting them in the door and getting them paid. <clears throat> Unfortunately, that happens a lot. There are a number of firms that have come into Kern County and throughout well, throughout the state of California doing that, and that is their business model. Mm. Get a lot of clients really cheap. Um, don't do very much, but they didn't have to pay very much either. Um, and really what you're getting is a warm body, and it, usually it's not even the, the person or people involved in the firm. They're, they just hire outside people to come in and, and plead guilty day one. Um, so my hope is, is in doing this that we're able to change the result. If I don't think I can do something significant to change what someone could do on their own, then there's no reason for me to be involved in the case. And you've also had enough success where you have the ability to say no. Yeah, that's probably the, right, that's probably the greatest gift that I've been given with what success I have had is to be able to say, yeah, this isn't the case or the client for me. Um, it's rarely personal. Sometimes it is. I, admittedly, there's some people I choose not to do business with. Every good entrepreneur does right. that. Right, absolutely. Um, I was told early on that you will be judged by the cases you didn't take far more than the cases you did. Mm. Um, and I have found that to be an absolute truth in this profession. When we've, um, when I take a case, I truly believe at the outset of it that we can make a significant difference in the outcome. Does it always happen? No, um, but I would say probably 98% of the time I'm right. Mm. Sometimes I'm even surprised how right I am uh, in it. And that's our goal. We, we don't want people spending a bunch of money on legal fees that are unnecessary. Mm. It doesn't do well for us. It doesn't do well 
for the reputation of attorneys in general, which has not gotten much better over the last <laughs> three decades I've been doing this. Um, so I, I hope that we, I feel responsible um, to leave the profession a little better than when I started in it. Have you always done DUI cases? Yes, but on a different side. So okay. I started off in law school as an intern at the Yolo County District Attorney's Office and started in their traffic department, which led into me handling a vast majority of the driving under the influence cases while I was still a law student. And this was for the prosecution? That was for the prosecution. Okay. When I came down to Kern County, I originally came down here working uh, as a landman in the oil industry. My, my summer job, which I'd worked for two summers in, uh, in San Jose, uh, had got bought out. The law firm had gotten bought out by another larger firm and they were not hiring any of the promised first year associates. So they told me right as I was getting ready to take the bar exam that I was no longer had it. I no longer had a job available there. Um, so, uh, I took a position as a landman doing. What is a landman? Okay. So a landman is in the oil industry. A landman is kind of an old term. It basically is people who go around and will purchase or lease land mm -hmm. from landowners in order to drill wells or in my case initially was to put up wind farms. Okay. Um, and so I was originally sent to Pendleton, Oregon of all places out of law school. Um, I'd finished the bar exam, got sent to Pendleton, Oregon, which is a town of about 7,000 unless it's the Pendleton Roundup occurring, <laughs> which is the second, third largest rodeo in the world. Um, and during the Pendleton Roundup, it swells to about 100,000 people. There is nothing but empty hotels there normally. Um, that fill for a two-week period of time. Uh, I went up there. It sounds like Sturgis. It, it was essentially Sturgis <laughs> for the rodeo world. Um, and so I was leasing land up there for a wind farm and got told, you're going to Bakersfield uh, for an oil project. I said, no, I'm not. And they said, why not? And I said, uh, when I was in college, I was heading to a speech contest that broke down in Bakersfield once and ended up in the bus station there. And I, oh, will, no. I will not be returning to Bakersfield <laughs> voluntarily. Um, and it ended up, I did take it. They paid me an inordinate amount of money to come. And once I came down, uh, that job ended and I ended up uh, wanting to get back into prosecution. So I walked into the DA's office, met with Ed Jeggles. Uh, who said, when can you start? And I said, well, I'm not working currently, so anytime you need me, he said, this was a 12.30 interview. He said, you start trial at 1.30, handed me a file, and I started prosecuting here. Uh, <laughs> swore me in right on the spot over lunch, and uh, I was a DA uh, and started doing, doing uh, DUI cases then. That was a vast majority of the one-type crime case. Uh, when I came out and started my practice, uh, I started doing almost exclusively DUI, although I took some other general criminal stuff yeah. uh, and then narrowed it down into exclusively DUI about almost two decades ago. What prompted the shift from being on the prosecutor mm -hmm. to becoming a defense attorney? Was there a specific case? There, well, and no, there really wasn't. Um, I was open to that idea because when I was a DA, I had a, I probably had the same mentality as most young DAs. It was filled with dreams of, you know, helping law enforcement, saving the world, being part of the thin blue line that protects ordinary citizens from anarchy. I was going to protect the world. Um, what I found out I was doing was there was a case 
where I was prosecuting a driving under the influence case and the officers had come in and we were getting ready to put them on the stand and I met with them a second beforehand and they said, what do you need us to say? And I said, well, we, I've gone over the police reports. I'm comfortable with what you said in there. Just say that. And they said, no, what do you need us to say? Uh, with the implication that they were willing to say anything that I needed them to in order to get a conviction. And that was my first realization that maybe I wasn't doing God's work that I thought I was. And it kind of spread from there. Um, I never saw myself as a defense lawyer. I never thought I could do this side. I, I still... To a large degree, <laughs> you still I'm surprised that I do this side of the, the cases. I never, I always visioned as law enforcement. I got hired by the FBI uh, while I was a prosecutor and was going to go to Quantico and, and become an FBI agent. Um, that was going to be my next task. And so when I left the DA's office, I eventually opened up this practice, but it was really accidental more than anything. I was waiting for my date in Quantico and I left uh, in. May, or I'm sorry, October, and I was just going to let it filter over. Well, in the time that I waited for my assignment to Quantico, I had done pretty well, and I had been fairly successful on the defense side. I was getting hired by a lot of people, and I realized I was making more money than I would make in decades as a FBI agent. But more importantly, what I realized was I was 27 years old, and what I realized was there were 14 FBI agents who were doing my background investigation. I had done nothing at that point in my life. I had gone to high school, college, and law school. And there were 14 paid professional investigators out trying to find out if I was a communist. And I realized that's what I was going to be doing as an FBI agent. I was going to be finding out if other people... I was not going to be the Clarice Starling... Uh, silence of the lamb, chasing Buffalo Bill that I had dreams of. Right. I was going to be doing other people's background investigations. And I suddenly said, you know, I'm doing okay here. Kind of like it here. Had uh, met some great people here and thought I could, I could live here. So I decided to stick with my practice. If visioneers want to get in touch with you, how do they do that? Well, you can reach me uh, at Middlebrook & Associates. The phone number is 661-636-1333. Or you can just go to our website, and that is Kern, K-E-R-N, County, D-U-I.com. Social media? Social media. On Facebook, I think we have a Middlebrook & Associates Facebook page. Um, that's about the extent of the social media we do. Um, but I, I was told that my website campaign, which is about the extent of what we do, uh, has also put out little tiny ads on, on Facebook at one point or another, which I told them to immediately stop. <laughs> and if you enjoy Small Business Celebration, go ahead and like, subscribe, and notify. And when we come back, we are going to talk about how to develop and grow your business, especially coming out of COVID when we come right back. Spring is here and so are the mosquitoes. Protect your home and business from disease carried by roaches as well as from spiders and earwigs by calling the largest locally family-owned pest control business Oxley Pest Control at 661-325-2687. Protecting your greatest asset from pests since 1994, Oxley Pest Control is focused on stopping the spread of disease, 
ridding our community of pests, and keeping you comfortable in your home and business. Call Oxley Pest Control at 661-325-2687 or visit them at oxleypest.com. That's O-X-L-E-Y-P-E-S-T.com and 661-325-2687. And ask about their mosquito reduction plan, a safe and effective way to help reduce the number of mosquitoes this summer. Call Oxley Pest Control at 661-325-2687 or visit them at oxleypest.com today. I'm here with Richard Millbrook, the founding partner of Millbrook & Associates, and our visionary question comes from Heath who asks, the number of new clients coming into our office is slowing down. I know building it back up will take some time, but what forms of community involvement have you found gives you and your business the exposure it needs to succeed? I think that's a great question. Um, first, you gotta find something that you love, right? And you when know, you say what you love. What you love to do, what, what uh, involvement you do. Some people feel comfortable being in business organizations, some people are in charitable organizations, some people find social organizations, sports organizations. Um, find what you love. Find what you love to do. Um, for me, I've always been involved in children's charitable work. Um, I started that when I was in college. Um, I got sort of hoodwinked into the college, <laughs> the college organization of Rotary called Rotaract. And I had a business professor uh, who I just started taking his macroeconomics class. And he pulled me aside and he said, I'd like you to come to a meeting tonight. Um, and I said, well, that thank you. I appreciate that. And, but I'm busy, I have other plans, and I really didn't. <laughs> I certainly didn't want to go to a meeting that any business professor wanted me to go to. Right. Um, and he said, well, let me make it clear, um, you won't be able to get an A in my class. That's <laughs> bribery. So I show up at this meeting, and there's me and four other, I was a sophomore at the time, there's four other students. Um, and I said, oh, well, I didn't know this was going to be a board meeting. And they said, well, this is Rotaract, it's the College Organization of Rotary. Uh, I said, well, I didn't know it was a board meeting. He goes, oh, no, it's not a board meeting. This is the, <laughs> this this is the, the entire club. club. That's the president. That's the vice president. That's the secretary. That's the treasurer. And you'll be the incoming president. And I said, excuse me? And he goes, you're going to need to put a board together and things like that. And so I got involved, and it was one of the best things I'd ever done. We were able to build up the membership to over 250 members during college. Um, in a very small college. Um, what college was it? California Lutheran University okay. um, in Thousand Oaks. And so did that, um, had a great time with it. Um, and so took a break during law school. Uh, I came out and did Active 2030 here in town, which is sort of a young person's version of Rotary. It, it allows you to be a member from 20 to 40 years old. Uh, became national president and international president of that organization. Uh, when I aged out of that organization uh, at 40, uh, I took a little bit of a break but got back involved with Bakersfield West Rotary. I'm incoming uh, president for Bakersfield West. Um, it gives me the opportunity to to be community involved, mm -hmm. uh, doing things that I love to do. Um, it allows me to do the things and be enthusiastic about them. I've never been forced to do anything. I think if you're being forced to do things mm -hmm. you don't like to do, I, I get involved uh, I, certainly with my daughter's uh, sports teams, things like that. I have assisted coached before, but I always think find the thing that you love to do and find somebody to do it with and the rest will come naturally. But one of the things though, that Rotary has done is connections. Yes. 
Was this something that you found even when you were involved with Rotorac in college and you said that you were able to help grow that organization from five to 200 plus, was it the connections and the skills that you learned doing that that you were able to apply later in life? Yeah, um, that that kind of led to everything that I did, really. Um, I was a sophomore in college. I thought I wanted to go to law school. That was kind of my plan. Um, but through that organization, it kind of refined that idea. Through that organization, I met the seven member clubs that supported that local Rotaract club. Uh, through that, I received scholarships um, to continue college. And one of those scholarships included working in a law firm for two years. So I worked in a little local law firm in Thousand Oaks, a uh, little personal injury firm there. Um, I thought I would walk in as a young college student and I would be writing pleadings and attending court and do, I don't know what I thought I was going to do. <laughs> what I did was mail. Um, <laughs> Go get my coffee. Yes, exactly. But that really affected everything, right? It was really that. It was, you'll start in the mail room, you learn how to, what they called tickle files. We didn't have computer systems back then. It was typewriters. Tickle files, like tickle, 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 tickle. tickle. So you would, you would have a file, a uh, little file cards and each day would be one, two, three, four for each day of the month. And you would have, each case would have a card and it would have the name of the client, the case number, and then it would have little notes on it. And if you needed to see that file on the 15th of the month, you'd put that card on the 15th of the month, you'd pull it out and give it to the attorneys. But it taught me how important it was in an organization from the bottom up. Mm. I learned how to take out trash well and what happens if you don't. <laughs> I, I learned how to keep files and how important it was to Learn files. That all came from Rotaract, right? Just my involvement in that. Um, I got one of the uh, recommendation from the lawyers in that firm to go to law school, which certainly got me into the University of California at Davis, where I went from little Cal Lutheran with 1,500 total students to the University of California with 35,000 students. I've got, it only has 150 law students per class. Um, and when I got in there, I was in there with Stanford and Harvard and Yale and Columbia and all these major schools in Cal Lutheran. Um, and I'm certain that my involvement in that got it, got me there. I received a Paul Harris Fellowship Award from those seven Rotary Clubs, which got me in the door here at Bakersfield West. Um, and now we have tons of business connections. And it's I don't really use it for the business connections, but I've had the opportunity to speak at a number of the Rotary Clubs here locally about what I do and and give some pointers and tips and sort of an update of the court. Um, Has your practice as it's expanded outside of Bakersfield throughout the state of California and now across the nation, has it been because of your involvement in Rotary and making those connections with all those other clubs and organizations and the speaking engagements you've gotten from that that has allowed that to happen? I think that's part of it. Also, my involvement in national organizations like the DUI Defense Lawyers Association, which I was a founding member of, uh, the National College of DUI Defense, being involved in those self-educating in your area is super important. You're meeting like-minded people, not only, and also the California DUI Lawyers Association, which I'm now on the board of as well. I served as all the way up the board of DUI DLA as well. Those connections and being involved in something I love and, and, and get to learn about and do better and being around like-minded people who want to do the same thing you do, I think is probably one of the most important things you can do. One, it makes me a better lawyer. Two, it gets me involved in the aspects of law that I enjoy in DUI defense. And three, it's brought in 
an inordinate amount of business. I've, I am, to a large degree, because of my involvement in Rotary and those organizations, I have cases in, I think, currently 19 counties in the state of California. Wow. Um, referrals that come, uh, give you an example, just yesterday, I am friends and on the board with an attorney in Arkansas, uh, who's a D, one of the leading DUI defense attorneys in Arkansas. A friend of his uh, is an attorney in Arkansas who is a corporate lawyer for a major, major, major family corporation. Um, they have houses in Arkansas, Hawaii, and one of them is in Pebble Beach. They have a, a personal assistant who flies in private planes with them and does all their work for them. He picked up a DUI in Monterey County, um, and from that personal assistant contacting the owner of the corporation who contacted his uh, corporate attorney who contacted John Collins out of Arkansas. John Collins referred him to me to get some assistance and point him in the right direction if I was available for that area. And they retained my firm, and I'm going to Monterey next week. Um, so, and I'll be getting to visit Pebble Beach. Um, oh, darn. Yeah, what a, what a shame. <laughs> um, and so those kind of things happen almost exclusively because of my involvement. And that's one of the things uh, we were talking you know, off camera about the idea of being uh, introverted. And despite being an attorney, I'm kind, of a, I'm kind of an extroverted introvert myself. I would probably rather be alone at home than oftentimes participating in lunches and dinners and speaking engagements and things like that. Um, but, but reaching out in those ways in areas that I truly enjoy allows me to not only do things that are helpful for the community and for the profession, but it also allows the business to grow and it has grown exponentially because of those involvements. All because you were voluntold to join Rotaract. <laughs> no, that's the, the funniest thing. I've never heard that term before until last week at a, at a, at a President's Lex seminar um, in LA. One of the speakers said voluntold, and I said, that is the greatest term I ever heard that it was exactly what occurred to me. I was voluntold that I would be participating President of Rotaract. And all of that grew from that one that one chance and, and obligation. So You travel all over the country. You do a tremendous amount of work in your firm. What do you do in your time off? Or do you have any? Yeah, I, I, that's probably the part that I cherish most about owning my own company, right? Um, so I, I'm regularly told, how, when do I actually work? Um, <laughs> that's kind I, of a good yeah, sign. And that was the beauty of COVID, right? Um, COVID gave me an opportunity to do what I do away from where I normally do it. Um, when courts started transitioning to Zoom meetings and telephone conferences as opposed to in-person uh, appearances, I can appear in Ukiah that's seven hour drive away via Zoom. I had a hearing two days ago uh, on a felony DUI case in Ukiah that I normally would have had to go up the night before, drive there because there's no plane flights into Ukiah. Or I could have driven down to Burbank, caught a flight to Santa Rosa, rented a car and driven to Ukiah um, for what would have been and was about a three-minute appearance in court. I would have spent the night in the hotel. I would have gotten it back and, and drove back or flown back. And bill the client and bill the client. Well, that's actually a misnomer. Okay, so that's, that's actually a misnomer among, among a lot of judges and people. 
most criminal defense lawyers, mm -hmm. and certainly my practice, um, and I would say all DUI lawyers, charge what are generally flat fee arrangements. Um, and so oftentimes you will hear judges make comments like that. For instance, we spend a great deal of time doing work trying to collect all the evidence that we need. The prosecution, when you look at a DUI case, for instance, the collection of evidence is almost done, the job of the police and really the prosecution is done the minute you're arrested and stuck in jail, your job's over as a police officer. That's really it. You've done your job, you've collected the evidence, you've got the statements, you've collected the blood or breath samples, you're done. Um, my job is I, only beginning. I have to extract all of that information from the prosecution. And so in extracting it, not surprisingly, the prosecution doesn't always want it to be a fair fight. Um, and so I have to fight very hard to get a lot of those, those documents. Um, it only gets worse for them from that point forward. It doesn't get better for them. So they don't like exposing it. As a result of that, um, you'll see me have to continue cases. Sometimes I would say an average first time DUI case takes nine months to a year for me to get through. Oftentimes you'll hear judges say the same thing. Well, oh, you want to continue it's because you want to build your client more. I actually make less. Every time I have to show up for court, I make less money. If I could resolve a case showing up day one and I've, ch and I've charged them X amount of dollars, that's X amount of dollars in that one hour and I'm done. Right. Um, if I have to go back for 100 hours of work, it's reduced to one one hundredth per hour of that amount. Um, so my idea in, in, in not going there is I'm actually saving the firm money. I save the firm time. I make myself available to other clients rather than being gone for three days for, for what is essentially a three minute continuance in Ukiah. I can get on the get on Zoom at 1.30 in the afternoon, pop in, say we need the continuance because we have an you know, upcoming motion three weeks from now. We'd like to combine it all together. They judges like, great, judicial economy is wonderful. Off you go, I'm done in three minutes and has taken very little. So more direct answer to the question about what do I do with travel uh, and things I do other than travel. Uh, that, I spend time with my daughter um, and I travel. And sometimes I get to combine the two when she's not in school. Uh, in fact, we're taking a trip to Ireland for her spring break. Uh, coming up in April, we're going together and traveling Ireland together. Um, I've now been to 87 countries. I've done Zoom appearances and telephone conferences from all over the world. Waking up sometimes at 3 or 4 a.m. in the morning to do a telephone conference here back in Bakersfield or around the state. I have to ask a DUI attorney who's going to Ireland. Yes. You guys gonna go visit the Guinness plant? Well, uh, I will be going, she will not. She is, <laughs> she is 15 and a half, she will not be attending. I try to make it there at least once every trip to Ireland. Um, I will be going to Guinness. I, I hope to, to have a good uh, pint there as well. Um, the very different in Ireland, the, the laws for driving under the influence in Ireland are a .05. Um, so you do not have two Guinnesses and drive in Ireland, um, but luckily every place we're going serves it very close. What have you learned from traveling all over the world that you've applied to your business? Probably the ability to relate with different cultures, different people, different ideas. I think as business owners, um, as people, I think we tend to congregate with people we like or know or feel comfortable with. Mm -hmm. And those aren't always the people that walk in your door. Um, as much as we like to always enjoy the people we work with or have something in common with them, oftentimes the people who show up here are not the people I would normally hang out with at, at a local pub or uh, play badminton with. Or go um, to an Indianapolis or, Colts or, game. Or, yes, or go to an Indianapolis Colts game with. Um, 
So you get an opportunity to, to learn to interact with different socioeconomic levels. Um, you get to meet people of different races. You get to see people with different religious views, um, different social structures um, and social beliefs. It, it's given me the opportunity to learn different ideas and be accepting of all those ideas. And sometimes those are different views of what the law should be regarding driving under the influence, um, how they react to them, the social stigmas attached to them in their own cultures. Um, the drinking practices of those cultures have been fun to learn. Um, so I, I think that's probably the greatest opportunity is the, the ability to relate to all levels of clients for all reasons. Surprisingly, I, I have some of, I've had literally billionaires walk into my office, sit down across from me, who probably everybody would know if I said their names, um, and certainly what they do, um, and hire me. I have had people that I, uh, that I would have thought sat down across from me um, in what smelled like they had rolled in manure before they came in, were dirt covered, who were probably some of the wealthiest farmers here in Kern County. I have had people who showed up in uh, very expensive suits sit down across from me and not be able to come up with the resources necessary to retain me. Um, they can't even take it out a second no, on their house. No, exactly. Um, so I've been able to see all kinds, and I've seen people who've struggled and used seven relatives to borrow from to come up with the need to protect their ability to become citizens here in our country and that have, were brought over and they're in the DACA program and they're, they've have a low level DUI case because they were trying to help a sister come home um, who was who was being somewhat harassed at a local uh, party and he would go and went and picked her up and came home and he was very low level but didn't have the resources to retain me, who borrowed from seven family members, literally coming from resources. One had an ATM card, one had a little credit card, one had cash, one literally brought in basically a bunch of coins and said, you have a place where I can dump these in and count them. Um, so when you get to a chance to deal with all those different levels and all those different belief systems, um, a lot of it's come from the opportunity to travel and just see those. I've, I, I've worked with Rotary and Next 2030 and been in remote villages in El Salvador. Um, nobody had anything but a dirt floor. And, and I've also stayed in some of the nicest hotels and eaten the best meals in the world and dealt with the people who are also there as well. So I, I like to think of myself coming across a bunch of generations. I didn't grow up wealthy. I grew up in a low-income housing project in San Diego. I guess there could be worse low-income housing projects <laughs> to grow up in. But, you know, I, I came from a from a less economically advantaged background. And, and so I, I like to think that I'm able to interact with all of them. And we'll be right back. The reason we're talking with Richard Middlebrook, the founding partner of Middlebrook and Associates, is because of a visioner question that came from a visioner just like you. The visioner wanted to find out, how do I keep my business from getting stagnant? And how do I draw more business into my business? So if you've got a question, you've got a thought, somebody or something you'd like to learn about, reach out to us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram and let us know what you'd like to learn. So join us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram and tell us what you'd like to learn on Small Business Celebration today. I'm here with Richard Middlebrook, the managing founder of Middlebrook and Associates. And our visioner question comes from Juanita who asks, we've been doing the same business for the past 20 years 
and it's getting a bit stale. Dependable, but stale. What have you done to keep your business interesting to you? I think I've been pretty lucky in that for me, every case is a little bit different. Every client's a little bit different. Same Tinker Toys, different client. Exactly, exactly. You get to build it a different way. Um, we are always here trying to find better ways, uh, not reinvent wheels, but better ways to do it. So I am, luckily, I'm in a profession where the law changes all the time. The you get to add a Tinker Toy, take away a Tinker Toy. A big case came down yesterday. They found out one of our Tinker Toys was no longer available to uh -oh. us anymore uh, from the California Supreme Court. Um, so those kind of things happen. But what I try to do is I try to not only bring in um, people that encourage and ask what can we do better, how do we do it better. I think there's always ways to improve. Um, I, if you're in the business of making a widget and all you do is make widgets, I think there's a lot of things you can do that can keep that interesting and expand the product lines, things like that. For what I do, I try to bring in people, I try to encourage our staff, our employees to enjoy their jobs, to enjoy what we do, to, to have some perspective on it, uh, to try to um, make the office dynamic. Um, How do you make it dynamic? I think, I, well, I try to do it by, uh, we meet every week, we talk about our personal lives, we talk about where we're going, what we want, what our dreams, our passions are. Um, I see this for most of my staff as way stations. Very few will stay here 40 years um, and end their careers with me. Um, I try to make sure I'm encouraging them to bring in their passions into the office. I have, I have one who is a, a thriving chef. Um, and she loves bringing in, and we just try to do once a month at least, uh, she'll bring in and try out all our new creations with us. Um, it can get tedious sometimes because in general, you're playing with the same ticker toys, right? Right, and right. So, so you've got to learn to build it in different ways and enjoy it in different ways. We try to, we try to go outside the office and spend time together. Uh, we, especially during COVID, that was more hard to bring in clients to really add the spice to the life, right? Um, that you get from meeting clients, interacting with them. Uh, we do field trips to court so that the staff members who get stuck in here get a chance to see what, what our attorneys get to see in court. Yeah. Um, Build a little bit of empathy and understanding of exactly. what's being dealt with. Yeah, and, and it helps It helps for us as attorneys to sit with them during phone calls and what they have to deal with and the way they're being addressed by clients, maybe differently than what we experience as the attorneys. They also get to come to court and see what we deal with as a result of their work or when mistakes occur, what happens in the results of that. Oftentimes when you're secluded in an office, you don't see the results of a miscalendering of something, right? If you think you have something on calendar that isn't actually there <laughs> or it's in a wrong courtroom, what are the results of that? What does that look like? How does it play out in a courtroom? Let um, alone if it's the wrong day. Yeah, and that happens <laughs> occasionally too. You know, everybody makes mistakes. Luckily in, in, the, in the field that I'm in, almost all are very fixable very quick. Um, so almost any mistake can be rectified with very, very, very little ramifications. But the things that I try to do to spice things up is, is I'm not gonna open myself to other areas. It's not like I would start building a new widget. Um, but what I try to do is to make the office dynamic um, and exciting and we do, we celebrate everyone's birthdays and we do Christmas parties and we do 
we'll do a St. Patrick's Day party and we try to spend time with each other and each other's family so we get to know each other as people as opposed to just the guy who's down the hall who does the filing. You mentioned in the previous segment the importance of, of self-discovery mm -hmm. and, and growth. And one of the things you also talked about was this transition that you made uh, in your practice into going from prosecution to defense and being part of the DUI and becoming a major DUI attorney. A big part of that is something with the ACS-CHAL. And for visioneers who don't know, this, this is a very crucial part of what you do and the success of your business. What is it? When most people think of driving under the influence cases, they usually think of alcohol. They usually think of a number. We all now are pretty familiar with the idea that a 0.08% of alcohol in the blood is illegal in California to drive with that or higher. Um, and, and there's enough good science on that that says that that's probably a good idea. Um, the hard part about it is to ensure that, that those numbers are accurate, that those are right. If we're going to say that someone is doing something wrong, we want to be accurate in our convictions. What I try to do is, um, I became interested, I've always been interested in the science aspect. I kind of wanted to be a doctor. Um, <laughs> took, if you weren't going to be an attorney, you're going to be a doctor. Yeah, well, right up until I took organic chemistry <laughs> and realized I was not going to be a doctor. Um, my memory would, did not have that capacity. And so, but I've always enjoyed it. And I enjoyed, I had some great college professors in science areas in geology and, and chemistry and biology. Um, that always kept my interest there. Um, one of the reasons I chose DUI was because it's really the only crime that you deal with that is science-based. Mm. Um, while there is some, you, you hear things like CSI type stuff like DNA and fingerprint analysis, uh, hair follicle analysis, things like that. Most of those are very unreliable sciences, not DNA by the way, um, but fingerprint analysis is very sketchy. Um, hair follicle has been outlawed in almost every state at this point. Um, but DNA is interesting, but there aren't very many cases that involve DNA scientific analysis. You're dealing with murder cases. Most private attorneys are not getting hired in murder cases. They're not the O.J. Simpsons of the world getting arrested for murder. It's mostly people who do not have the resources to oftentimes afford high-powered lawyers to, to put together defenses for them. So they're usually with the public defenders or appointed attorneys. Um, my interest in the science aspects of it led me to learn a lot about driving the influence, alcohol, how it works in the bloodstream, how it works in breath, how we test for it and the science involved in that. Um, the American Chemical Society, which is the largest organization of scientific professionals in the world, uh, has anointed a, a lawyer scientist program. Um, that lawyer scientist program was developed by an attorney, uh, two attorneys really, uh, out of Oklahoma and Pennsylvania. Uh, they put together a extensive program with four full weeks mm. of in-lab training regarding alcohol analysis and blood and breath, uh, drug analysis and blood and breath. Um, so you had to go 
to Oklahoma or Pennsylvania and participate in the lab for four weeks and looking at all the samples and learning. Yeah, so it was actually Chicago. There's a lab in Chicago um, that we work with that is a training lab, trains probably 65%. So they, they use a device uh, called a gas chromatograph to do separation science, which separates um, chemicals in the breath or blood. Um, mostly it's used for blood analysis. Uh, and it trains people how to use those. It's a- And so you've been trained on it? Yes, so, I, so we went to uh, the lab in Chicago, um, took the training that, more training than probably most scientists get, certainly more than most lab analysts get. Um, I would have had far more training. They, their training is probably four to six hours on a machine about how to, what's called aliquot, blood into a tube, put the tube in, put in the right number so the numbers match and hit go. Yours was a little more extensive. A little more extensive than that. So we spent a great deal of time doing that. Um, a total of 500 hours of lab and classroom training on the science involving driving under the influence defense. And that is the award you get once you pass a 100 question test. Um, and I was lucky enough to be trained by uh, the American essentially the father of gas chromatography in the United States. Which was harder, that test or passing the bar? Oh, by far the bar. The bar was <laughs> the, the bar in the state of California is literally the hardest bar in the country. It is, at the time I did, it's now two days. It was three days. I studied for two solid months, 16 hours a day minimum, every single day. Uh, to make sure I passed that the first time. and First I, time? Oh, yeah. Congratulations. I, oh, yeah. There was no way I was taking it again. <laughs> I, I told myself if, if I don't pass it, I am not meant to be a lawyer and I will try something else. But learning what you had in Chicago and taking this test and learning what you had, how did that help your practice and help your, your, your clients? It allows me to do what no other attorney in the Central Valley can do, hmm. which is to talk to them on their level, right? Mm -hmm. Scientists struggle because they don't like talking to lawyers. Lawyers don't understand the science, they don't understand math, that's icky, that's why they become lawyers. Well, they are two different languages. Yeah, they really are, right? Yeah. And, and so um, it's very difficult. Um, I can, oftentimes scientists attempt to dumb down mm -hmm. science for the layperson. The problem with dumbing it down is it glosses over problems and issues that are involved in those sciences and most lawyers don't know what those problems and issues are so they cannot address them. And when they try to address them, they are incapable of making it understandable to a jury of lay people. Um, so that's what I try to do. I try to use the science of driving under the influence to explain to a jury what happens when you test somebody's breath for ethanol what happens when you test their blood for ethanol. I don't think by any stretch of the imagination I'm the greatest lawyer who ever walked the face of the planet. I do believe that I have the ability with that training and experience and, and honing those skills to show a jury those 283 cases, I got to just show the jury the truth. Here's the facts. They're gonna give you a number, let me show you what that number means, good and bad. Right. Once I was able to show it to them, they didn't trust those numbers and really they shouldn't. Unfortunately, when you deal with government science specifically, you're farming out to the lowest bidder. 
Um, and those aren't always the best way to get the best results, right. right? Once those are shown, here are the shortcuts we take, here are the things we don't know, here are the assumptions that we make. People generally come back and when you're asked to find someone guilty beyond a reasonable doubt, there are so many doubts that are reasonable in there that it's very difficult to rely on the science. Um, not that it can't be good, it can, but it depends on who's doing it, like anything. Uh, everything works well if you know what you're doing with it. Um, so we just try to show them what we're doing with it. One of the things that I've heard over the years, not just with lawyers, but with doctors and a lot of other professions, is you go to college, you go to university, graduate law school, you pass the bar, and nowhere in any of that do they teach you how to build a successful business. Absolutely. <laughs> How did you learn? Because the, the, the success that you've had, that you've earned over the years, didn't come overnight. So, so you, and you, you, you didn't grow up in, with a silver spoon. So obviously you had to learn this. How, how, how who, yeah, or who helped you? There were, there were lots of people on the way. I mean, I learned a little bit about how economics works from the professor who volunteered me to join Rotaract. Um, there were... There were mentors along the way when I was in college working for a law firm, a small law firm, seeing how they were trying to make ends meet, you know, how how you took money and put it in a bank and moved it to a different account and you put away savings and you helped and what the value was in getting trust in the community and trust from your clients. Um, uh, I don't even know if Steve Pedersen's still alive. I, I lost touch with him years ago, but he was, he was my mentor doing that. Um, I learned, you know, coming out from from other lawyers who would say, yeah, that's a dumb idea, make sure you save so you're not walking around with this guy at 94 years old, unable to have a retirement account because they spent every dollar they had. Um, but probably the most significant person who changed my life was Sue Watson. Ah, um, for, former guest here on yeah, Small Business Celebration. Former guest, and uh, Sue, uh, I brought in Sue to assist me in growing the business. I didn't know what to do. Um, I was a great lawyer, but a very bad businessman. Um, not because I wanted to be, but just because I didn't know who to ask. And unfortunately for lawyers, we tend to be expected to know everything. And so it's oftentimes very difficult to ask for help um, or guidance or to admit you don't even know what you're gonna ask about. Um, I didn't know about 401ks. I know they existed. I didn't understand what they were. Um, I hadn't started one. And I was pretty far into my practice before I actually learned how to open accounts and do those kind of things. Um, so I brought Sue in to kind of evaluate the business. And at the time, when I came out of the DA's office, I had had uh, only two areas that I'd ever worked in. I had worked in criminal prosecution, and back then, the district attorney's office had done uh, child support enforcement. And so I had gone from a temporary employee in the criminal side, they said, we can get you on permanently, um, but we have to send you over to family law to do child support enforcement. Um, and everybody loves. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I did that, and the attorneys who were over there were laughing at me. And I said, when I walked in, I told them, don't get used to seeing me here. I'm going to go back to criminal. And they said, oh, really, are you? And they said, uh, I was an attorney there by the name of Holly Okafer. And they said, Holly, how long have you been here? She goes, nine years. When were you told you were going to go back? She said, after one. Uh, Corey Woodward, how long have you been here? seven years when you were you were going to go back after one and I saw the writing on the wall I was never leaving family law um, so when I left all I knew was a little bit of child support and a little bit of criminal work 
So when I opened my practice, I did what I knew, and I was I continued to do family law and criminal, um, and had done both side by side for a period of time. And I kind of felt like a fraud doing both, to be honest. Because you weren't doing what you enjoyed. I wasn't doing what I enjoyed, and the fact was, in doing it, I wasn't. I didn't feel like I could excel at either one. If I was a really good criminal defense lawyer, then I was kind of defrauding my family law clients. And if I was a super good family law attorney, then I wasn't being the best criminal lawyer. And so I kind of got into a rut of just, I felt like I was very mediocre at a lot of it, um, to be honest. And so I brought Sue in and she asked me a question that changed my life. It was the simplest question that I'd never asked myself. She goes, what do you love to do? What do you love to do in your business? What makes you happy? What makes you get out of bed in the morning? And I said, I love doing DUI defense. And she goes, why? Why would you love that? And I said, I get to integrate science. I get to be in front of a jury. I get to try cases. I work with people who are not what I consider real criminals, right? Like not the really, and we're not talking rapists and murderers. We're talking about people who, who were working their jobs, went out with a couple of buddies, grabbed a couple of beers, and maybe made a bad decision. Um, they were pretty good people. I thought I could change lives doing it. And she's like, well, why aren't you doing it? I said, well, be, I, nobody does that. No one just does DUI defense. I mean, it's part of criminal defense practice. You do criminal work and that's part of it. She goes, well, why not just limit your practice to DUI defense? I said, well, I'll never make money. She goes, why would you think that? I said, I, I don't, I, I just would guess. Like, I don't know anybody who does that. And she goes, maybe that's exactly what you should be doing is because nobody else does it. And it changed my life. Changed my life. Gave me an opportunity to do something I love. She told me exactly how to do it. She said the demographics will work. She looked at the demographics. She said, let your family law practice die off naturally. Just quit accepting clients. Quit accepting general criminal cases. Just accept the DUI cases. Focus on that. Be better at that than anybody else. I got lucky. Met Sue. That came from Steve McGar, actually. Steve McGar introduced me to Sue. Also a former guest. Yes. On Small Business Celebration. Speaking of what Sue asked you, what makes you wake up every morning and open your business? Opportunity to change people's lives. My own, my staff's, my family's, my friends, um, and more importantly than anything, my clients. How so? When I think we all run into this. I used to think this was true about lawyers specifically, but I think it's probably true about every business. We, people reach out to whatever you do, whether you are a printer, whether you are a restaurant, whether you are an attorney or a doctor, the business aspect is the same. Someone is coming to you willing to give you their hard-earned money to do something either they cannot do themselves or do not want to do themselves. Mm. And that is true of every business. Whether it be cook a meal for you, whether it be clean up after that meal's over, whether it be design a logo, uh, put together an ad campaign, host a podcast, get your name out into the world, right? How do you do all of those things? A lot of us are good at what we do, not very good at a lot of other things. I've met a lot of doctors that don't know how to run their businesses at all, that are terrified of the legal schemes, that don't know how to invest their money, um, have lost tons of money with bad investments. Um, what gets me up every morning is I have an opportunity to change my clients' lives and the people around me that I care about and love. Um, I have given myself, a, the selfish part is, I get to give myself a life that I never dreamed I could have. 
Um, I'd give my family a life I never dreamed I could provide. Uh, but most importantly, and what's always sits with me is my clients. Um, they have entrusted me with their lives, with their livelihoods, with their happiness, sometimes their marriages, their careers, their hopes for the future, their dreams, and said, hey, some on one end are like, I didn't do this. I, I cannot be convicted of something I didn't do. Some are like, yeah, I did do it, but I just don't want to be punished more than what is fair. Um, and there's a whole spectrum of that, but ultimately they relied on me to do what I do to assist them in doing what they couldn't do. And it doesn't always work out perfectly, but most of my clients when they leave here are far, far better off than they were when they walked in and far better off than they ever hoped they could be at the end of it. That makes me get up in the morning. I love what I do. I love that Sue gave me the opportunity to do the things I love to do every day. I never thought I could be this happy practicing law and I am grateful every single day I show up here. I have a great staff. I have uh, great legal partnerships in the community and outside the community, friends I can call on literally all over the world to say, how'd you deal with this issue? Um, I learn every day. I get to learn more every day. I get to be better every day. I never feel stagnant. I never feel like it's that it's just another day at the office. I always feel like it's an opportunity to do better, to be better, to help more, and to give back. And probably the nicest thing is it's given me the opportunity to be involved in places like Rotary and Next 2030, where I take the things that I do well and translate that into the community as a whole for people who would never walk into my door, but I still get to have an effect because somebody did. Um, and I'm grateful for that. If visioneers want to get in touch with you, how do they do that? Pretty simple. Uh, you can call me at 661-636-1333. That's my office line. You can go to the website, which is probably the easiest way to find out about what we do and how we do it, and that is Kern, K-E-R-N, County, D-U-I.com. And social media? Social media, Facebook, has uh, Middlebrook & Associates Facebook page where I think we post once a month or something like that. <laughs> <What you need laughs> not as much not. as I should. <laughs> exactly. Not as much updates as I should. Well, Richard, this has been a privilege. Thank you very much for joining us here on Small Business Celebration. Thank you so much. It's really been a great opportunity, the whole, the whole experience. And I'll be right back with my final thought. Spring is here. And so are the mosquitoes. Protect your home and business from disease carried by roaches, as well as from spiders and earwigs by calling the largest locally family-owned pest control business, Oxley Pest Control, at 661-325-2687. Protecting your greatest asset from pests since 1994, Oxley Pest Control is focused on stopping the spread of disease, ridding our community of pests, and keeping you comfortable in your home and business. Call Oxley Pest Control at 661-325-2687 or visit them at oxleypest.com. That's O-X-L-E-Y-P-E-S-T.com and 661-325-2687. And ask about their mosquito reduction plan, a safe and effective way to help reduce the number of mosquitoes this summer. Call Oxley Pest Control at 661-325-2687 or visit them at oxleypest.com today. The innocence of a question. I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation with Richard Middlebrook. He's big, he's 
brash, he's boisterous, and he's very good at what he does. But it wasn't always that way. His practice started out mediocre at best. He was taking cases to do things he didn't like with people he didn't like when he was getting results that were half as fulfilling as he wanted them to be. And it wasn't until Sue Watson asked him, why don't you do DUI? An instant question. A question many of us should ask ourselves. Why not? After all, it could change your business and change your life. I hope you enjoyed our conversation this week with Richard Middlebrook with Kern County DUI, and I hope you learned something that you can use today to grow a strong and profitable business, and we'll see you here again next week. Thank you for listening to the Small Business Celebration Podcast. Some of today's music was brought to you by Ted Hammond, and you might find more of Ted's music at ReverbNation.com forward slash Ted Hammond. That's ReverbNation.com forward slash Ted Hammond. If you enjoyed this episode and gained some insight from it for your business, subscribe to the Small Business Celebration Podcast at iTunes.com forward slash Small Business Celebration and give us a five-star review. Also, if there's a business you'd like us to interview, reach out to us on LinkedIn and Facebook and let us know. Until next time, I'm your host, Michael Roberts of the Small Business Celebration Podcast, and we wish you a strong and profitable business.